You are listening to Devils in Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priest, Episode 12, Danny Croto's Sister. A warning for listeners, this episode deals with the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. This episode will be a little different than the previous 11 of this first season of Devils and Dirtbags. We're going to discuss, in detail, how the murder of Danny Croto affected his family. Our guest is Danny's youngest sister, an inspiring woman named Kat, who also happens to be a high school classmate of mine, a fellow Cathedral Panther, class of 1986. In 1983, we both took the Introduction to Journalism course taught by Sister Ann Lynch. I remember Kat as being a nice person, though I wasn't close to her at all, and I thought she was cool because she was a punk, which was a rare creature in the preppy corridors of Cathedral, and because I was a wannabe punk. Back in high school, I hadn't known Kat was Danny's sister. In fact, I didn't learn Danny's actual identity and his relation to Kat until Father Richard Levine was arrested in 1992. Before that, I just knew of the local legend of a priest suspected of killing an altar boy and getting away with it. Unbeknownst to most of us at Cathedral High, Cat, haunted by her brother's murder, was dealing with serious trauma. That's probably why, as she explains it, her teenage years were a mess. Obsessed with a certain boy, she smoked a ton of marijuana and cigarettes, enjoying many of her British-style weed and tobacco cigs in Cathedral's official student smoking area, conveniently located outside near the cafeteria, on the path to the school's science wing. So now, 34 years after we graduated from Cathedral, I reached out to Kat, asking to interview her about her experiences connected to the death of her brother. Graciously, she agreed. Whenever anybody ever asks me how um, Danny's death affected my life, I always say it was like a bomb going off in Hiroshima because it never stopped. It's generational. My kids are affected by this. My my daughter was named after my brother. I don't know how much of an honor having this heavy name on her shoulders has done. My family did not survive this. We chose to live in spite of this. And there's a huge difference. I chose to live. I'm part of the world. Even after 48 years, 
the murder looms large in her life. She thinks about her brothers and her parents and suspected murderer Levine every single day. See all those specials on television that says time heals all wounds, eventually you're going to get past this. That is a lie. You have to learn how to live with it. You can't ignore it. You can't get over it. It doesn't feel better ever. It's not something that heals with time. There is no such thing as getting justice. There is no such thing as that moment when somebody goes to jail that that's going to make anything okay. Just to be clear, Kat and her family and Lieutenant James Fitzgibbons of the Massachusetts State Police and lots and lots of other cops, journalists, lawyers, and locals who knew the entire sordid story all believe, without a doubt, that Levine murdered Danny. My dad and my mother, till the day they died, believed with their whole heart, mind, and soul that he was the one who took their son's life. And some of that was because of that phone call. She's talking about the phone call on the afternoon of May 2nd, 1972, 17 days after Danny's body was found floating in the Chicopee River. During that call from Father Richard Levine to Bunny Crodo, Kat's mom, the priest told her that, quote, under the circumstances, it would be best if I didn't come around for now. Then, without another word, Levine hung up. Bunny was baffled. Why was their devoted friend suddenly abandoning them? On this, of all days, it had already been a tough one. That morning, the state crime lab had released Danny's blood alcohol test results, 0.18%, nearly twice the Massachusetts legal limit for adults. Uh, they found it very weird, very odd. What do you mean you're not going to be coming around anymore? That specific phone call was very damning for him. They just lost their child. This is an individual that just said their son's mask. Very confusing for my parents to be told this by somebody who is their friend, their spiritual support person, that, bye, see you later. That was really, really hard for them both. For the longest time, she wondered why Levine called and spoke with her mom rather than her father. Now, she has a theory. You know, I don't think he was brave enough to, to speak with my dad. Uh, I think he was afraid to, to do that. It was easier to, to hit my mom in the back of the knee. My mother could be stoic at times and, you know, kind of keep everything inside. But when she did that, it, she kind of shut down. And when I, I think that he was counting on that because he'd known her for a while at this point. And my father would have been the person to go, why? Kat's memories of April 1972 are blurry and distant. No surprise, she just turned five years old a couple weeks before. I really didn't understand what was going on. I, I just had an understanding that 
people were very upset. There was a lot of chaos. There were people in and out of the house. I remember going into the car with my mom and looking for my brother um, with her, her calling his name. It was in a time frame where you called kids' names and they usually came home. Just had to scream their names throughout the neighborhood. And, you know, they went running back home. As we know, Danny didn't come home. And Kat was sent to stay with a family friend for a couple of days until things calmed down a little bit. I have no recollection whatsoever of that visit. I remember the gathering after the funeral at my parents' house. I remember rain. I remember my mom crying a lot and a lot of cigarettes being smoked and where people were so, so sad. My brothers were acting weird. I didn't understand really what was going on, feeling like I was invisible. I twirled around for my great aunts and I did my ABCs backwards literally by and, and got $5 from an uncle. I was trying so hard to make everybody laugh and I wasn't really understanding what was going on because everybody was just so serious. Even though she was just five, Kat had dealt with death before. A beloved aunt and her grandfather had passed away the previous year, but this was different. I have a very, very clear recollection of throwing an absolute temper tantrum, crying my eyes out and screaming. I just want my brother back. My mom didn't know how to handle it. And my poor aunt was the one who really had to explain to me that he's not going to come back to the house anymore. I, I don't think even my little girl mind comprehended that my aunt and my grandfather were not going to come back. They didn't live with us. Danny was my toy in uh, so many ways. Like, you know, when the, all the boys were going off to do something and um, my sister was going off to play with someone, there weren't a lot of kids in this area in, in my age bracket. And he would play tea with me. He would read me stories. He would play uh, peekaboo with me. One of my favorite memories is laying on the floor and uh, sticking the little pegs in the light bright with him and being very angry with that light bright afterwards. I have no idea why, but for some reason in my little girl head, that light bright was bad. But I don't know if, if I somehow correlated that with my brother being gone or I don't know why, but I really didn't like the light bright very much after that. Kat's memories of Richard Levine are vague. I know I didn't like him. I just didn't like him. That's really pretty much all I remember is that when he was present, I didn't care for him. I I always liken it to a dog, you know, when, it, when a dog just doesn't like somebody and they growl at someone, I just did not like him. As a matter of fact, I know my mom kind of pushed me, and so did my father. In retrospect, I think in their mind at that time, um, I was being disrespectful to him by not, you know, being woohoo. Everybody else liked him. But for me, 
I just didn't care for him. And my mom later, there was a person that my aunt was dating and my mom, I didn't like him. My mom let me leave the table because I just did not want to be near him. And she said, no, her instincts are right. She let me leave. Her parents' relationship with the child-molesting priest had been exceptionally strong just before Danny's death. He was extremely close to my parents, to both my father and to my mother. He was close to both of them. At one point, my mom had told me that there were rumors her and Levine were having an affair because he was over at the house so much and she would stop by in the parking lot. I And I have very distinct memories of this, pulling into the church parking lot and having father come out and talk to my, my parents. And that just made me really kind of nauseous to call him father. But he would come out, he would talk to her. Sometimes I would be half asleep in the back seat. It was the good old days when you didn't have to wear a seatbelt. And they would talk and my mom would drive away. And back then, it's my understanding that you made a formal appointment with your priest or you went to the confessional and you discussed things, whether it's family problems, whatever. The way my dad described it to me was it was like that, only it had a more casual feel to it. And instead of feeling like you are in front of uh, the principal and you've been a bad person and you're not going to go to heaven, he managed to put you at ease and he would discuss things. And my father would tell you if he were here today that he was very, very charismatic when he preached from the pulpit. I mean, he was very charismatic when he had one-on-one conversations with you, whether it was about the war or where he traveled or what he did. My father would often say that he was extremely intelligent and he made them feel comfortable. As with many unsolved mysteries, myths arise. One that's been retold often in the media accounts of Danny's murder was that Levine was the one who identified Danny's body. Kat says that's not true. Her uncle Richard was the one who ID'd Danny at the funeral parlor. Levine was there providing comfort as a priest. Honestly, I don't think it matters at this point. I know that the biggest struggle that my parents had to deal with was the fact that he convinced them to keep that casket closed. And that was horrifying for my mother because my mom would sometimes wonder, is it really her son? And interfered with her grief process. The closed casket was totally unnecessary. As we learned from Lieutenant Fitzgibbons in Episode 1, Danny's injuries were either internal and invisible or external, but easily covered by mortician's makeup. Fitzy, by the way, became part of Kat's childhood. He visited the Croto house frequently, keeping Carl Sr. updated on the investigation. And, if it wasn't for Fitzy, Kat's brothers probably never would have revealed that Levine fed them booze and molested them individually on a regular basis for years. Her brothers, true to form for 1970s-era Catholics, couldn't discuss sex with their parents, much less sexual abuse by their supposedly beloved parish priest. They had reluctantly told Fitzy of being molested by Levine about 
three weeks after their brother's murder. They were extremely fearful of telling my father prior to Danny's death what had happened to them. And after Danny's death, my brother Greg had related to me. He felt very responsible that if he had told my dad, would dad have believed him? If he had told dad, would this have stopped it from happening? My brother struggled all his life with the guilt of not telling my dad and having a really difficult time communicating with my dad about what happened to him. Sadly, Greg was burdened forever after, never able to convince himself that he was not responsible for the murder of his little brother. But when you're 40 years old and you're looking back or 25 years old or 30 years old, you're being told that the primary person who might have killed your brother is the man who hurt you. You don't think, oh my God, I'm just a teenager. You think, shit, I should have fucking told my parents. I could have stopped this. You start playing the blame game. It's not an abnormal thing for, for kids to do that. The year after Danny's murder, Cap began attending Olsh, Our Lady of Sacred Heart, like all her siblings had. Unlike most of her fellow students, she loved the nuns who ran the school. I was treated very well by the nuns. I know I have friends that go, you were what? They were mean. I don't think any of the nuns at Olsh were mean. I thought they were wonderful. Could they be harsh? Yes. I always felt that they were how nuns are supposed to be, and I guess for other people, it wasn't necessarily the same experience. And I hate thinking that it would be because of my brother's death that they treated me well. But I also felt protected by them. Turns out she did need protection, at least during her first two years at Olsh. I've mentioned Father Jerry Spafford a couple times this season. He was a very close friend of both Richard Levine and Father X. In fact, he was the one who suggested Father X commission the family portraits that still hang on the ex-priest living room wall. Also, like Levine, Spafford was the rare priest in the early 1970s who spoke out from the pulpit against the Vietnam War. From Kat's perspective as a young girl, though, he did not seem like a priest. He wore sandals. He looked like Jesus. My best description of him is he kind of retrospectively reminded me of Charles Manson. I mean, he had that mustache beard and the long hair. And I did see him with the sandals on, with the priestly garments on. But at the same time, my little very strict Irish Catholic family Priests had short hair. They dressed in their black suits, except for, you know, I, I do know that Levine would show up but in the house with casual clothing on, but not like being in dungarees and a t-shirt, but like a dress shirt, pair of pants. Jerry Spafford has not been placed on the list of Springfield clergy credibly accused of child sexual abuse, though I've found several mentions of him in court documents related to child-molesting priests. Ordained in 1967 by child-molesting Bishop Christopher Weldon, 
Spafford served as a priest at Olsh until 1976, when he suddenly disappeared and was given a so-called leave of absence for a year. Then he returned to the priesthood, serving at Sacred Heart Parish in Holyoke for a couple more years before taking another leave of absence and then leaving the priesthood for good in 1979. Spafford died in 2015 at age 75, and I gotta admit, I hope he suffered before kicking the bucket, because in 1973, when Cat was in the first grade, this scary, Charles Manson-looking priest accosted her in the hallway. She was alone, on her way back from using the little girl's room. Spafford grabbed the six-year-old Cat by the arm and said, quote, Your parents are going to burn in hell. When he let go, Cat ran back into her first-grade classroom and told Sister Marie what happened. So I was very upset. I was crying. And she took me out into the whole hallway, and she spoke with me for a few minutes, and I told her that that man said my parents are going to burn in hell. I, you know, I, I just remember being really, really upset. And she told me to calm down and sent me to my desk and she didn't come into the room right away but i will tell you that after that he did not come anywhere anyway why did spafford say that to cat we'll never know but in the wake of danny's murder the crotos strayed from the flock For a while, my parents did not go to church. Specifically, um, my mom. She was the longest who stayed away from church the longest. The one thing my mother never did was give up her rosary. She had a rosary everywhere, but she eventually did go back to church. Interestingly, Kat also has her mother's devotion to the rosary. However, Kat believes her fondness for the meditation comes from the David Carradine character she saw on reruns of the old Kung Fu TV show. Um, that show did plant some seeds for me and gave me some, as a little girl, some coping mechanisms. So I had the rosary, which were like his beads and, you know, and on the program, and I would do the rosary. The rosary has always been something very comforting to me. And I know that a lot of people would be going, what do you mean? That's a Catholic thing. Well, it's a mala and it's not necessarily a Catholic thing. And I don't have a problem with being Catholic. I have a different perspective than some people, and my perspective is not black and white. I don't believe that any religion in the world is necessarily a bad thing or a wrong thing. Um, I, I don't think that if you're a practicing Buddhist and you, you, know, you were once a Catholic that you're going to burn in hell. About a year after Danny's death, Carl Sr. returned to Mass, initially at Ulsh, though, not St. Catherine's, the parish where they'd befriended Levine. According to Cat, he kept pestering Bunny to accompany him to church. Eventually, after about four years, she gave in. And, sadly, when they began attending Mass, the Croto family wasn't welcomed by everyone. We did start going back to church. It wasn't a pretty picture. My parents were treated kind of like pariahs. Some people snubbed my parents. Um, my parents tried to warn different people, you know, yeah, really don't want your kids to be with Levine. 
Those people weren't happy. It never went beyond the investigation. So they felt like they had stolen this good priest's name. There were also people who showed my parents a great deal of support. And I don't want to downplay that by any means because there were some wonderful people in the community. Even if they didn't agree with my parents, they were supportive of my parents. But there were some people who were assholes. Like we had the bubonic plague. In 1992, some people were coming out of the woodwork going, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. My son, my, uh, you know, they didn't take my parents' advice. Their children had already been victims. Danny's name was rarely mentioned in the Croto household in the years following his murder and almost never in front of Kat's four brothers, all of whom were haunted by guilt. Whenever Lieutenant Fitzgibbons came around, he always discussed the investigation with Carl Sr. outside. Fitzy and her parents were trying to protect Cat from the painful reality of their loss and, probably, trying to protect their own mental well-being. As she got older, Cat wanted to learn more about her dearly departed brother and honor the scant memories she had. However, that didn't go over too well, especially with her brothers. At this point, my one of my siblings had told me, you know, I was at at nine years old. You can't talk about Dan. You you're too young. You don't remember him. You were too young when he died, and that really ate at me um, for a while. The following year, it happened again. This time with another brother, a traveling salesman who came home for a visit. He was home with his girlfriend and his, his girlfriend was asking me about my brother and I couldn't give her some of the answers that she wanted. Like I know she was digging about Danny's stuff, but I was talking to her about what I remember of him. You know, like he, he played tea with me and he made my dolls talk and my, my bears talk. And, um, I remember that and I wanted to share that. That was, I, I finally had somebody who would listen to me. And he, my brother blew. He blew like you would not believe. It didn't sit well with him. He was like, I don't want you asking my sister about this. She's too effing young to remember this. Today, Kat knows the girlfriend was asking questions about Danny because the woman had been concerned about the terrifying nightmares Kat's brother had almost every night. But at the time... As a young girl, Kat certainly couldn't fill in the details about Danny's vicious murder, and she was very upset by her brother's anger. Unfortunately, Kat's mom had been at a ceramics class during that painful conversation, so young Kat was all alone in her distress. When my mom came home, I did tell her what happened, and she did tell him, you know what, I get that this is hard for you, but that was her brother too. Decades later, when that brother fell ill, he moved into Kat's home and she took care of him. He remembered that and we talked about that too and that bothered him for you know a while that he had basically forbidden me to speak about Danny, but it, it had a profound effect on me because it became even bigger for me than you can imagine. A couple of months later, when she was 10 years old, 
Cat decided it was time to find out what happened to Danny, but not from her mom. You can I could literally talk to my mother about anything. Like I could ask my mother, I heard this. What does this mean? Uh, but I couldn't talk to her about Danny. Despite being extremely protective of her daughter, Bunny allowed Cat to make occasional trips around town on the city bus, provided she went with a friend. One day that summer, Cat decided to visit the main branch of the Springfield Library to see what she could learn about her brother's murder. This would have been quite the adventure in the late 1970s for two young girls to hop aboard the PVTA bus and head downtown to the Springfield Quadrangle. I was a reader, and I, you know, loved the library, and I knew that they had newspapers. So I didn't necessarily know that they had my, my brother's stories on microfish, but I knew that they kept the newspapers. So um, I went downtown with my friends, and um, I did not tell the librarian what I was looking up. I wanted to see the newspaper articles about my brother. And the librarian was like, well, those are too old. They're on microfish now. So they set up the machine, and I looked, and I was pissed. There were two articles on my brother's death. Two. That's all I could find. Kat is correct about the lack of media coverage of Danny's murder. The two stories from 1972 had very few details, leaving Kat with more questions than answers. It would be another 20 years when Levine was arrested for molesting altar boys before reporters began to dig deep into the priest's sins and crimes. Cat returned to 16 Acres that day, deeply disappointed. And I remember being upset, and but it still, I mean, it didn't really, it didn't explain enough for me. I wanted to under, I wanted to know what was going on, and um, what happened to him. And when I went home, I told my mom. Um, you know, she asked how her trip to the library was, and I was like, I went to do this, and. My mom was upset that I didn't feel like I could ask her questions or talk to her about Danny. What happened next would transform Kat's life forever. Her mom offered to try to answer any question Kat might have about her brother and his murder. So Kat asked about what had been bothering her the most. She'd always thought that Danny had drowned because he was found in the Chicopee River, but now she wasn't so sure. She took a deep breath and asked her mother, how did he die? She asked me if I felt like, you know, do you feel like you can, are you sure you really want to know this? And are you sure you can handle it? Because it's going to be hard. And she said she would get in. Just a second. She would get any death certificate. Bunny couldn't bring herself to read the official document aloud. She got it and she showed it to me and it said, death by laceration to the brain. I think that moment probably changed me in more ways than I can say, in more ways than I can even explain. From then onward, Kat was a different person. I look at my pictures from when I was a small child, and I can tell you right when 
I found out the complete and total truth about Danny because I start gaining weight and I struggled with my weight sense. A lot of stress and a lot of grief can cause physical ailments and I suffered profusely from migraines. They were horrible. There were times in my life as a teenager that I could not get out of bed. I was throwing up. I never correlated the two between each other. I believe that Levine murdered more than just Sandy. I believe he murdered the physicality of death of two of my other brothers. As And I, I believe he changed the nature, the very nature of every person in my family. It's impossible to rank the impact of their personal pain and suffering, but the murder probably damaged her four brothers the most. All her siblings had emotional and substance abuse problems, and a couple brothers had extreme drug and alcohol issues that wrecked havoc on their lives and the lives of their children. My brother's death and what happened to them absolutely ate at them like poison. Like somebody just feeding a little bit of arsenic every single day, every day. You know, they didn't want to hear his name, especially when I got older, when I was in my 20s, talking about him was fine. But when I was a kid, you did not say his name in front of my brothers. That was a no-go. At that time, I didn't understand. Retrospectively, I don't understand because I think it interfered with their healing process. But you just didn't. And I loved my brother so much and they were so funny and they had so much to offer this world and they struggled with guilt they struggled with shame they struggled with fear because one of my brothers told me I'm afraid to be around my kids sometimes I'm afraid that I'll become like that monster Um, he talked to me about about that fear it was not something that he easily discussed so, and I could tell the effect that it had on him. It was, it was just indescribable, you know, because in the 80s and the 90s, they started talking about if this happened to you, then you, there's basically it destroys you or you become a monster. There was never any gray area kind of presented like, and if you get therapy and help, then it won't destroy you and it, it, you know, you won't become a monster because that's just how he perceived it, you know, um, I'm either going to be destroyed completely or I'm going to become a monster. Her parents, of course, also suffered great sorrow. My mom never went through, you know, counseling and she was profusely depressed and she hit it quite well. There are pictures of my mom where she smiles at her. She has this beautiful smile pre-Danny. And then post-Danny, it's almost like a, a snarl to her lip. Her, her, a portion of her lip is just slightly raised. Like, it's her tell that that's not a real smile. She really tried very, very hard not to be absent, but she was very absent for a period of time in my life when I was little. And I think it was her processing processing the, you know, the crap that was going on and the investigation and 
my father was extremely protective of my mom, and I don't know how much he, she told her at different junctures. He knew everything, but I always felt like my father kind of piecemealed the information to her. While her mother never saw a shrink, she did have weekly visits with one of her sisters, who served as her sounding board and confidant, listening to Bunny's fears and tribulations for decades. Carl Sr. never sought professional help either, but found some solace in booze and attending church and while playing poker with a bunch of fellow Korean War veterans who returned to Springfield in 1953, all of them shell-shocked, finding camaraderie with others damaged by the horrors of modern warfare. Carl never spoke to Cat about the atrocities he witnessed, although he did share a handful of details with other, older children. Some of the battles his unit fought are known for being particularly brutal, and there, playing cards among comrades, Carl was able to talk about his devastating feelings of loss because of Danny's murder and his anger that Levine was still walking free. Kat, luckily, learned a coping mechanism from her dad. When I was about 17 years old and super angsty and crying and just really, 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 really angry, my father said something to me. You're never going to get past this unless you're going to forgive him. I, I asked my dad, I'm like, what do you mean? How can you forgive him? He said, every single day, I have to try all over again to forgive him. I don't forgive Levine the man, but I forgive Levine the child because I really truly believe in my heart for somebody to be that kind of a sociopathic monster that something horrible had to have happened to them. And whether it was as some have reported at the hands of his mother or his father, I don't know who it was at the hands of, but I don't think people are just born monsters. I think their environment plays a key part in what happens to them. Kat's attempts to forgive Levine haven't ended her suffering. I'm still angry. I'm still very angry. And I don't think anything's ever cathartic. I think that people who learn how to deal with a tragic loss learn how to deal with it by getting to know the monster in the room. How has this affected me? How has it changed me? What can I do? to make this more positive for myself because I could have very well run risk of becoming a drug addict and an alcoholic. I've come to recognize that I use the word hate a lot. And that's a very strong notion. And I recently had to think about where is that coming from? The white elephant in the room? I'm literally looking around it going, I don't understand why I'm like this. Why do I use that as always my, you know, I don't go to a dislike. I always say I hate. Well, when you grow up where you feel like you didn't just lose your one brother, you feel like you lost them all instantly because runs away to California because he can't deal with it. And another one goes into the army because he can't deal with it. And you have another brother working this weird job and you never see him anymore. And, and it's not just a natural evolution. It seemed like they all just, this first 
your sister's no longer at the house with you, she's down the street and avoiding being home at all possible costs, babysitting, just not wanting to, to be around the house. When you're five, six, nine, 12 years old, you really feel like your entire family just died. As an adult, Kat has occasionally crossed paths with Richard Levine. She's seen him at the Holyoke Mall. Once at BJ's Wholesale Club, she had to leave because the child-molesting priest was also shopping there. Another time, she bumped into him at the cardiologist's office where she was bringing her mother for a doctor's appointment. She had always avoided speaking to him until a couple of years ago. I went to Chicopee and maybe two years ago, year and a half ago, and ran into him at a diner. And he pissed me off because I recognized him. And I must have had that look of recognition, like I know you from someplace or you're famous or um, whatever it was. Because he gave me this smug, nonchalant, like, you know, the, yeah, I'm famous, kind of nod back. And it just set me through the roof. And I got up and I followed him out to the parking lot. And I told him, don't worry. Danny and Mike and Joe never forget you. And we are always watching. We are always watching. And I turned around and I walked back in there and I sat down and I was shaking like a leaf. Not from fear. Just, I never realized how much, first I can't believe I did it, but I was, I was not a happy person with how, like, how dare you think that you're freaking raping boys and ruining their lives. I don't know how many suicides you probably caused in 16 acres. And you think that you can just give me a flip of your head like, yeah, that's right, I'm famous. You smug, arrogant bastard. I just wanted him to know that people haven't forgotten, that people are still looking out for him. They still, they know who he is and what he is. I don't think that we should torture ourselves thinking that if someone had just spoken up, that the course of this life would have been changed and Danny would have possibly lived. Back then, I, I don't necessarily think that anybody would have acted on it. I think if two or three people came forward and, and um, if they tried to act on it, I think somebody in the power team would have said, not going to happen. Obviously, Kat will always be haunted by the murder of Danny and the slow demise of her brothers Mike and Joe, but she's trying to live her life in spite of that trauma. These days, she's a post-op RN at a Springfield hospital. She recently became further accredited as a holistic nurse, which gives her more latitude to discuss alternative treatments with her hospital patients. And she tries to follow her own advice. I suffer from clinical depression, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I experienced a traumatic event at a young age, and I struggle every day to not be sad. It, it's something that's always very tangible for me, and things can be, I could be having a great day and something could trigger me. So I have struggles with that, and 
I will tell you that's part and parcel of choosing to live is to say, today, I'm not going to let this get to me. And I will not lie and say, and I was super successful because I wasn't always. I made bad choices. I made bad decisions. But mindful meditation, alternative therapies like reflexology, um, breathing exercises. I've done Reiki. I've gone to meditation groups in the Springfield area. And, you know, I've done anything and everything that has been suggested to me that could possibly help me without having me have to pop a pill to feel better. By no means is it a, a perfect, peaceful thing that happens immediately when you're doing these meditations, but it does help calm the soul. And finding a little spark of joy in every day, being proud of yourself for putting the PJs on. And there is something I, my mom told me once that uh, probably helped me the most is to tell myself I love myself every day, even if I didn't believe it in the moment. Every morning, tell yourself you love yourself. It helps you get out of bed. As for talk therapy, can't believe sometimes it's helpful, sometimes not. So when you're told most of your young life that you're not allowed to talk about this particular subject and then all of a sudden you can talk about this. Talk therapy is very, very helpful. But sometimes we get very stagnant in it and we start to loop in this I feel sorry for myself narrative. And I don't want my life narrative to be I felt sorry for myself. My grandfather had named me Sunshine and I remember being a very happy little girl and I really tried to keep a part of her alive in me every single day and find some sort of joy every single day. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It doesn't have to be anything big. Getting yourself out of bed and putting on something other than your pajamas, that is the start. I was like a five-year-old the other day because I saw a doe on the side of the road. In Springfield, a doe on the side of the road. It's a big deal. I know there are people out there that are suffering, feeling guilty and, and feeling, you know, all there's a whole range of emotions. And I hope they know that they're they're not alone. I want to thank Kat for speaking to me about Danny and her family's ordeal. To relive and discuss those stories must be so freaking awful. To me, Kat is a hero for surviving such a horrific trauma and going on to create a life for herself. I'm so happy that she's found a loving husband, has two great kids, and a rewarding career where her healing and compassion helps others on a daily basis. During our first conversation, there were many times when I broke down sobbing after she revealed some terrible detail. These days, tears come easily, and they came frequently as I listened to her sad tale in her own words and voice. At the end of the phone call, she urged me to try to find some joy. She knew I'd spent the last three years working on this investigation and that I was extremely depressed. She was worried about me. I wish I could have hugged her right then 
through the phone lines. As our second phone call wrapped up, she told me she wanted to thank me. And I'm like, thank me? And she explained that the night after our first interview, she'd been replaying our conversation in her head. As she drifted off to sleep, she'd been worried that nightmares were headed her way. Instead, she had a wondrous dream, which she views as more of a memory than a dream. She was a baby in her crib in her parents' house, and her brothers, the ones who passed away, were playing with her. Peekaboo, peekaboo. She saw them, remembered them, laughing and giggling, and then she heard her mom yelling at the boys, telling them to calm down because they were starting to play too rough with each other. And then she heard Bunny's sweet voice speak to her, saying, It's time to lay down. It's time to lay down. For Cat, even though the dream, the memory, probably just lasted a couple of seconds, for Cat, it was a precious gift. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com for source material and top-secret memos. And to learn about my books, movie, and my other journalism, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Episode 13 is the season finale of Child Molesting Priest, thank goodness, during which we'll wrap up some loose ends and meet another hero who battled the Springfield Diocese and won.